welcome back to the SOCH podcast, a co-production of the SOCH Research Lab and WKDT at West Point, where nothing human is alien to us. While the outbreak of the pandemic has delayed our production schedule a bit, we look forward to continuing to bring you relevant content that helps you make sense of the world. Given the recent protests sparked by the death of George Floyd, it's appropriate to take a closer look at the roots of American democracy, and the following conversation does exactly that. This episode is a bit different in format as it's a guest lecture in SS386, our course in political thought, originally recorded in March. The first voice you'll hear is Dr. Hugh Liebert, Associate Professor of American Politics here in the Department of Social Sciences, and he'll introduce Major Max Colella, our resident expert on Alexis de Tocqueville. The interview that follows covers a wide range of topics centered around Tocqueville's seminal work, Democracy in America. Because it's such a timeless work, it's always worth revisiting, but we didn't expect it to be so timely when we initially planned this episode. One administrative note is that they do reference a few images as they talk, and those are posted in the show notes. Without further ado, here's Dr. Liebert. I'm joined today with a very uh, special guest, Major Colella, um, who I bet a lot of you know already. Um, he's you know, the OIC of debate, uh, course directs American political development, um, is a great military mentor to a bunch of folks. I, I hear anyone who wants to learn about the infantry uh, goes to Major Clella for good reason. Um, but I know him mainly as the only human being I've, I've ever met who's more obsessed with democracy in America than I am. So I thought I thought he'd really be a great person to invite to do a virtual kind of guest teach in this lesson um, to, to introduce us to this wonderful book and, and tell us why it's so wonderful. Um, so thank you, Major Clella, for being with us. Yeah, I'm excited to. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, all right, well, just to kick it off, I, I, I maybe should have mentioned that you're actually teaching a class right now, like currently this semester, um, that's exclusively on democracy in America. As far as I know, this has never been done at West Point. And, uh, you know, one whole seminar devoted to one book. And what a book. So why are you doing that? Tell us what's so great about Tocqueville's Democracy in America. For starters, I think uh, in undergraduate and maybe even especially at West Point, we touch on a whole lot of different great works. Um, we've all read parts of Plato, parts of, I don't know, David Mayhew's uh, stuff on congressional politics. So you read little excerpts of all of these different books, but very rarely do we read books cover to cover, right? And so you can wind up getting a fairly narrow perspective on, you know, whatever author you're reading, if you only read a couple chapters, right? It, it's good, and like we wanna have breadth, but every once in a while, I think it's good to have depth on a on a particular book. And so that's you know part of the rationale behind just reading, you know, doing a course on just one book. And then if you're going to do a course on just one book and you teach American politics, there's really a very small number of other options that are going to cover the kind of breadth of issues that Tocqueville talks about with the kind of uh, perspective that that Tocqueville has. And this particular book's ability to kind of remain relevant from 1835 until 2020 and beyond is, is just incredible. So between those two things, one, just the idea of reading a book cover to cover and really trying to grapple with the entire complete thought of, uh, of an author, and then to do a book that has had such an impact on people that have studied American politics from since since its publication until now, and not just in the United States, but in France and Britain. This was a uh, this was a very popular book, even right after he wrote it. It kind of put Tocqueville on the map. 
and the other thing is it's just fun this this class has been a labor of love if there ever if there ever was one and so uh, i'm enjoying it i think the cadets that are in it are enjoying it and yeah that's why so I read this book for the first time in college, I think, and it immediately struck me as, as a really important book. And I, I've kind of been reading it since then. Um, did you read this in, in college for the first time or how did you encounter it? I read excerpts in my uh, intro to international studies class. We read excerpts from it. The only thing I can remember is being somewhat offended at a guy that didn't like rugged American individualism. <laughs> That's the only thing I remember taking away from this book or like the tiny excerpt that we read of this book in undergraduate. Uh, Since then, I had run into uh, run into different people that quoted it and stuff like that. And I thought it was interesting. And then uh, I took an I basically took the uh, the same course that I'm teaching now from a guy named Dr. Joshua Mitchell at Georgetown, in which we read the book cover to cover. And that was the coolest academic course I've ever taken. And so from there, then I was in love. And one of the interesting things Dr. Mitchell used to say is that he said, you could not claim to have really read a book until you had read it for 15 years. So I am now, I think, four years in. Uh, I'll let you know in nine years and I can then I can claim to have actually read the book. So you're dating it, though, from the graduate seminar, not from college. I don't remember. I couldn't even tell you what the passage I read in college is, sadly. <laughs> Sadly, that was that was an injustice that was done to me that I am doing my best to to uh, save all the AP cadets that I run into and any cadet that I run into uh, from from having to go through their 20s without really having uh, engaged with Tocqueville. Yeah, I, guess I, I just love how much of a purist you are, but not only do you totally like, you know, back Dr. Mitchell's comment that you need to read a book for 15 years, but you even want to be rigorous in where you start that dating, you know, start the clock. <laughs> Um, yeah, because it doesn't count to read it unless you really read it to cover to cover, right? Which, um, and unfortunately, we're not doing in, in this class, so that we're reading some good snippets of it. They have, hey, they have the hey, summer coming up. Yeah, that's true. No, that's right. And hey, what else? You know, we have lots of free time, or a lot of us do anyway. Uh, exactly. with this, you know, um, being holed up, uh, what better book would there be? Anyway, uh, great. So let's talk now a little bit about Tocqueville, like who he was, um, where he came from. Uh, you've, you've been to uh, France where Tocqueville grew up, is that right? I have. I have. It's uh, I've been to the Chateau de Tocqueville. Um, we stayed. You can stay there. So uh, it's kind of like a bed and breakfast. You can stay in a wing of the house that didn't exist when Tocqueville lived there. His brother uh, had it built after after Alexis de Tocqueville's death. But you can go you can go to the house. You can stay there. You can uh, kind of wander the grounds and you can go to his office. So I have stood next to the desk on which he wrote volume one and parts of volume two of Democracy in America. Awesome. Do you um, mind if I show some pictures? Abs- uh, absolutely. Awesome. Great. I'm going to put them up now. All right. So there's the man himself. So the name at the bottom of the slide would give you some indication of who Alexis de Tocqueville is. He is not a common man. He has a bloodline that he can trace to the uh, to William the Conqueror, a, a knight that went with William the Conqueror in 1066 to England to uh, to conquer the the Anglo-Saxons. Right. He is he is um, well educated. He is a member of the it doesn't have any by the time he's alive, it doesn't have any legal legal implications. But he is a member of the French aristocracy, a proud member of the French aristocracy. And that absolutely influences his thought. So could you just say a little bit like how how do you see that influence and what he wrote? 
So Tocqueville says Tocqueville is very upfront that he is a quote friend of democracy, and we can talk about what he means by democracy in, in a little bit. But he is not afraid to look at it as uh, one of my favorite articles on him says kind of an aristocratic disdain. Mm-hmm. Um, he is willing to look at it and look at the nuances of democracy and call out where what it does well and what it does not do well. And he is. Uh, he is very concerned with kind of bringing a, an, an aristocratic kind of concern for greatness of soul to democracy. And that's one of his biggest concerns is that uh, in equalizing pe- what he's going to call um, conditions of equality, that conditions of equality can kind of iteratively train people out of the instincts of trying to be everything that you know, he thinks humans are capable of. Mm-hmm. Right. So in, in that sense, a kind of skepticism and an aristocratic disdain for the democracy that he otherwise, um, he calls himself a liberal. Uh, he, he is pro-democracy, but he is willing to uh, willing to look at it in the eyes and say this is good and this is bad and this is how we need to avoid the worst implications of it. Yeah, interesting. So so that greatness of soul or concern for that and and some degree of like independence from democracy kind of comes out of where he came from, right? From the social yes. class, from France, all that. Okay, great. Um, what a beautiful picture. Oh my God, is that, yeah. is that the chateau itself? That is the chateau. Uh, the turret on the right, that has been there since I think the early 1500s. Wow. Standing in the top of it, you can see the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it is right up there in Normandy. So should you ever you know, desire to go to Normandy for other reasons that American military officers, especially airborne American military officers, might want to go there, this is only a quick hour drive uh, north of St. Mary Glees. And so it's right up there in the northern kind of parts of, of Normandy. It is uh, it's a beautiful area. It is not Paris, right? It's not, I mean... If you've seen kind of caricatures of the French aristocracy, uh, especially in like the 50 to 100 years prior to Tocqueville's life as this kind of very privileged, well, I mean, he's still privileged, but this very kind of luxurious lifestyle. This place reminded me more of the Scottish Highlands um, in this like kind of cold, windswept, rough seas, big, you know, rocky crags and lighthouses and things like that. Um, Much, much different from what I expected a... uh, the lands of a French aristocrat to look like. I think there's a picture later on of the library. That is the desk on which he, uh, the desk on which he wrote uh, much of volume two. Awesome. Well, no um, wonder it's so, so wonderful. I mean, how could you not write a great book in that space? Yeah. Looked at, he's got, uh, we found Rousseau, we found Locke, we found uh, Montesquieu, several of the, you know, the big books. Great. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the trip he makes then. So why does he leave this wonderful chateau and go to America? For a variety of reasons. Um, one, intellectual curiosity. Uh, he, as we'll talk about with his thought, right, He, th- democracy is coming, at least conditions of equality. When he says democracy does not mean that everyone votes. That's a subset. That's like a type of democracy. But that's democracy in general just means that he can't claim any legal privileges for having his particular name. And so he thinks that that is what's coming. That is inevitable. It's it's providential, if you will. It's coming to France. He's concerned about how France is going to deal with this, this new kind of advent of democracy. And so he wants to go to the United States to see the place where democracy has made the most progress, to see how the Americans deal with democracy and what he can learn 
uh, to bring back to his native France. Right? He is a proud French patriot. Um, he really wants the best for his, his native land. And he wants his native land to kind of learn from the United States what it can about democracy, both good for good and ill, so that it can uh, it can kind of embrace and adapt to this new this new phenomenon that is that is coming. The other thing he does, he, he goes to France as a ambitious young French lawyer with a fairly, uh, fairly good aristocratic pedigree. And he wants to write a book that's going to put him on the political map. That's what he writes to his relatives of one of the reasons why he wants to go. And so between those two, and he, uh, in order to get the opportunity paid for by the French government, he comes over to, uh, he, he gets the French government to send him there to investigate the American prison system, which at the time is considered the most uh, kind of progressive prison system in the world, right? So that's actually the first thing he publishes when he gets back, is he writes a book that is very well received. Uh, it's more of a report on the American prison system, right? So he does, he does his due diligence. He spends a lot of time in American prisons, comes back, writes his report. And then settles down for five years and writes, uh, the, well, 10 years, actually, and writes the first volume of Democracy, publishes that, takes another five years to write the second volume. Really neat. Okay. And so it looks like he goes all over, pretty much. I mean, but, but he has like a, an uneven treatment of the different regions. I mean, he seems yes. to, I don't know, think New England is more important or more representative of the future than other parts of the country. He spends a lot. So looking at this map, he does not spend an even amount of time in all of these places. Uh -huh. uh, he spends an inordinate, well, inordinate, he spends most of his time actually in New England and in the Northwest. Um, he spends a lot, of, and it shows as you read, he spends a lot of time with the old Federalists, which by the 1830s are largely not politically relevant anymore, but they are still, they still exist. They still have this kind of old Hamiltonian, Hamiltonian uh, thought. And it comes through in his, uh, it comes through in his book, right? He, he has a, Somewhat a nuanced version of Tom, a nuanced picture of Thomas Jefferson, for instance, who he thinks is the Democrat par excellence. Mm -hmm. And so he spends a lot of time in New England, spends a reasonable amount of time kind of out in the, uh, out in the like really the Wild West at the time, out in the Michigan Territory and places like that. And that uh, that line you see where he goes cuts through the Deep South from New Orleans all the way up to Washington D.C. Of the uh, almost a year that he spent, or actually slightly over a year that he spends in the United States, he spends about two weeks uh, making kind of a like beeline from New Orleans to Washington D.C. because he got recalled to France a little bit early. Okay. Uh, so he is he his time in the United States is heavily weighted in uh, in the North, in the Northeast. But he does go, he, as you can see, he does experience a wide variety of, of the United States. But I think in the book, his, his limited, the limited time he spends in the Deep South um, that wasn't kind of the Wild West, Alabama and Mississippi were kind of the Wild West at the time, right? He doesn't spend much time at all in Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, or Virginia, right? And I think that comes across in his work a little bit. He, he does, though, have a, a reason for not talking that much about those parts of the country, right? I mean, it's New England that's most yep. equal in its conditions. Yes. And the South, that is kind of this vestige of the old aristocracy. Yep. So if you're writing about democracy, you should write about New England. It's true. Is yes. that fair to the South or is there more to be said for the American South than Tocqueville says? The other thing about the South and why he sees it in a different, different light is slavery. But I'll address the other point that you said. You're absolutely right. He sees New England as the kind of 
center point of democracy in the United States. He says what happens in New England is kind of the ideal type of American democracy, and it sheds its light, it spreads its light from New England all the way out into the rest of the country. But that light is obviously brighter the closer you are to New England, mm-hmm. right? When he looks down and when he looks down at the Deep South, Tocqueville is deeply offended. Is I guess I'll use the word offended. He is deeply shocked at the nature of American racial slavery. And it colors everything that he says about the South. So in in that sense, he sees in the South this kind of fake aristocratic society that um, even as he notices things that kind of are missing from the uh, missing from, say, the North, right, this kind of materialism, this rampant, uh, rampant individualism, you might argue that he could he might find something slightly different or at least a a different a more aristocratic concern for culture literature and things like that if he looked in the deep south a little bit more deeply than slavery but he is so shocked and disturbed by the nature of american slavery that he doesn't really do that and everything he writes about the south is uh largely revolves around his conception of how slavery affects the uh, democratic ideals of americans living there Maybe then, having talked a little bit about now about how the book came to be and where he went and who he was and all that, we can um, just kind of open the book. <laughs> so what, uh, yeah. what what are the big things we should notice? I mean, a lot of the, the students in 386 are probably reading this for the first time if they haven't had the good fortune to take American political development yet or, you know, one of our other courses. But what what should they be on the lookout for? What are like the top two or three, you know, big ideas that Tocqueville explains in this book? At the risk of oversimplifying, because that's what we do anytime you reduce somebody down to a couple different ideas but that I, I tell my my kid the kids in uh the cadets in my Tocqueville class there's really two things you've got to understand about Tocqueville one is the inevitability of democracy and the implications thereof mm-hmm. right that democracy is providential in that sense it is foreordained it is the it has been on the march since uh since at least the Roman Empire traces it to Christianity and it's been moving forward since then these taking down of these kinds of people being born into power being born into authority being born into wealth and being unable to change that right the class system this is the feudal class system right you have some people that are on top you have some people on the bottom right and that there's no way to move within those classes right that's the old system the new system is breaking that system down everyone is becoming more and more equal in terms of birth. That does not mean he doesn't think that there's rich people. He does think that there are rich people and there are poor people. But within a, within two or three generations, somebody can move from being poor to their son can be rich to their that the rich person's son can then go back down to poor. And because there is that ability to vary over time, he also thinks that things that people re, are reduced to kind of a mean right? That most people are fairly well off, but they're not rich and they're not really poor. They have a taste for physical comfort, but they always, they also have the, uh, the sense in which that their, the physical comfort that they live in can go away. If you think of our class as a society and originally two people get to make all the decisions about, about what's going to go on in that class, then those two people would have some degree of power. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say we now democracy has happened now everyone has an even say right has anybody gained any real power no everyone's say is equal and also everyone has a very little of a say about anything and so 
the sense in which democracy makes people individually weak, both it allows them to live better lives than the overwhelming majority of people in aristocracy. That's a good thing. But the potential problem is that it makes everyone weak and really only concerned about themselves. That's the that's the one thing. That's the inevitability of democracy. And that's one of the good things about it and one of the bad things about it. Right. It makes people better off and better able to experience much nicer things in life. And it means it makes them uh, makes them individually very weak and also concerned about themselves because they're constantly concerned about losing the nice things that they have. That's one thing. Can I, can I just pause there before Absolutely, we yeah. move on to the other thing? So that that's the point, if I remember correctly, that offended you when you were in college, um, this idea that individualism might be a bad thing. Uh, yeah. You know, think of it as a form of weakness. Do, could you just say a little bit more about that? Because I can imagine someone objecting to that argument, saying that individuals might in some sense be weak, but they must be somewhat stronger, at least if you imagine the serfs in the aristocracy acquiring some rights, acquiring some legal protections and so on. I mean, they might be they must be stronger in some way than they were under aristocracy. Why is there this new kind of weakness in, the, in democracy? They do have a sense to, they do have an ability to better their own condition. They have, you know, the the ability to make money, the ability to make things, the ability to keep the things that they make or to sell them. Conditions that they live in are much, much better, Tocqueville says. You know, most people, you know, live in this kind of absolute squalor, uh, in, in aristocracies, and a few people experience the great things of, of life, right? Culture, leisure, uh, politics, and all these other kinds of things, right? That's the few. And then the many, they can look forward to life after. They look forward to, uh, to heaven, right? That's what they have to look forward to. In democracy, yes, it gives them the ability to, it gives everyone the ability to have the right, have rights, have uh, nice things, yes. Um, in that sense, yeah, it does, it does give them some power, but it does not give them the sense of security of being able to maintain maintain that power and also think about things that are outside of outside of themselves. Right. They're constantly going to become concerned about their own individual state in life. And in a sense that the old serf is going to get cared for to the extent that he's going to get cared for by the aristocrats, by his you know feudal lords. And that's it. No, that, that's helpful. So that because the serf doesn't really have any opportunity to, to improve his situation, he can focus on things other than his situation, right? Yes. It's not like it's narrowly tailored. Whereas when you have the opportunity to like work hard and improve your little lot in life, right? You yep. individually or your family, um, that really can be just the sole object of your concern. And so that's different yes. than, than an aristocracy. Yes. All right. So one one thing then that we should clearly take is this kind of inevitable march of democracy uh, yes. for, for forever. It's a kind of providential fact. It has to do with Christianity and it ultimately results in maybe some disappointment. I mean, something, you know, that we have this problem anyway that we have to confront at the end, uh, towards yes. the end of this march, or as it's fully developed, of individualism. And Tocqueville, again, because he because he comes, he he's connected to the old system to some extent or the best of the old system to some extent. Right? There is this sense of loss that he has whenever he talks about Whenever he talks about aristocracy, again, it's this kind of like concern for high culture, greatness of the soul, this uh, sense of like self-sacrificing virtue that he says are not really not really all that possible in the new democratic age. At the same time, he is he is very upfront about the the like greater good is that all, all people have been lifted up quite a bit in their in the their ability to live satisfying Satisfying might be the wrong word, but at least like comfortable lives that are, you know, 
in a, a you know, very, very mediocre, but much better than what the overwhelming majority of people used to have to put up with. Okay. The other big concept is contingency. So there's an inevitability and then there's a contingency. Remember, I said democracy for Tocqueville is not one man, one vote or one person, one vote. Right. That is a subset of democracy. That's that's what he's going to call um, popular sovereignty. Right. Is the word he uses. That's what he means by the people actually governing themselves through voting. He says conditions of e- conditions of equality do not mandate that the people govern themselves. It just means that there is that the people are in general equal. It also does not preclude a leader from among those people who, as long as he or she speaks in a way that kind of bases their legitimacy on the on the the public right has a right to do whatever they want because again the individual no individual has enough power to stop them right the story of the middle ages is this kind of in this kind of constant uh, struggle between the king and the aristocrats right this is the magna carta the magna carta is king john basically submitting to the will of the aristocrats and, and saying i will not claim these particular things, these particular taxes, these particular things that I can do to you, put you in jail for nothing, things like that. That is the king submitting to his aristocrats. That's power checking power. Think of kind of Montesquieu, right? And Montesquieu has this has this sense in which, you know, there's an aristocratic house that's supposed to do this to some extent. Tocqueville's concern is once you have made every, you've leveled everyone off and made them generally equal and also concerned only for themselves, that they will, over time, as long as the uh, as long as the government or the power, the, the political power, bases its legitimacy in some loose sense of popu- uh, public opinion, democratic man will just give over his rights over time, and uh, ultimately wind up in this what Tocqueville calls equality of servitude. And he contrasts this with equality, and you can have equality in freedom or equality in servitude. And that's the contingency, and that's what the rest of the book is designed to help elucidate and understand for help his readers understand is how the United States, in his mind, maintains at least for the time being mm-hmm. its equality in freedom, um, but that that is contingent on several different several different things. And I can just read one of my favorite lines out of yeah, the book please. where he talks about this. This is a. Uh, this is at the end of one of his uh, one of the early chapters, chapter three of volume one, uh, the social state of the Anglo-Americans. Mm-hmm. He says there is indeed a manly and legitimate passion for equality, which rouses in all men a desire to be strong and respected. This passion tends to elevate the little man to the rank of the great. But the human heart also nourishes a debased taste for equality which leads the weak to want to drag the strong down to their level and which induces men to prefer equality in servitude to inequality in freedom. It is not that peoples with a democratic social state naturally scorn freedom. On the contrary, they have an instinctive taste for it. But freedom is not the chief and continual object of their desires. It is equality for which they feel an an eternal love. They rush on freedom with quick and sudden impulses But if they miss their mark, they resign themselves to their disappointment. But nothing will satisfy them without equality, and they would rather die than to lose it. Mm -hmm. Right. So that Democrat in in this new democratic age, mankind nourishes this sense in which I'm as good as the next person. Right. I'm not born with any sort of authority or wealth or anything like that that I can and I can earn my place and I'm an equal. And so to preserve that sense. 
democratic man will give up his freedom in return for maintaining his equality if the opportunity comes up and so there and the circumstances allow the rest of the book is largely him describing the ways in which the united states uh avoids that which he sums up as one of them is um circumstances right the united states is kind of unique geographic location you know across the across the atlantic from any of the european powers that might harass it this kind of unlimited resources to some extent, all of these things play into this this uh, means by which the United States maintains its equality and freedom. Uh, the second one is its education. And by education, he means the sense in which the United States has been practicing democratic government and self-rule, participatory self-rule for its entire, its entire existence. And he, he best captures this when he talks about the New England township in which you have everybody from the township comes into the, the town church and they all vote on the local dog catcher and they vote on where to build the roads and they vote on where to where to build the church and the school and how much to pay the school teacher and all these like they're participating in their government in a very real and uh, non-abstract sense. That's the education that he's talking about. The other the other. Uh, so, yeah, it, that's the education. Right? He calls the he calls local government the schoolhouse of democracy. And it teaches that teaches Americans in things that are small to govern themselves so that later when they have the revolution and they suddenly have a national government, they now know how to govern themselves without uh, descending into anarchy at much higher levels because they've been taught in the schoolhouse of democracy, which for Tocqueville is local government. And the last one is mores. Right. And mores are habits. It's a kind of think of it as moral habits, right? The way in which Americans live their everyday lives is uh, for Tocqueville very much informed by the American family and American religion, that it teaches Americans to love order and tranquility and kind of to pull them and it pulls them out of themselves and teaches them to care about something that is higher than them, which again, if, if the potential danger of, of democracy is this kind of individualism that redu eventually reduces to egotism, right? This kind of self-centeredness. Then for the United States, he, when he talks about religion and family being able to pull you out of that kind of egotism and put you in, teach you to uh, kind of value order, tranquility, and a higher collective identity that then you see you then put into practice in a higher level when you deal with local government and eventually national government that that is what maintains the United States' equality and freedom. He thinks even that's contingent, and he's going to point to some things that he, um, if you read the book, you'll see he's concerned about. But that's that's his main takeaway of the United States, and he wants to communicate those things to his French readers, especially to kind of say, like, you can't copy this, but these are the things that allow the United States to do it. They sh that should help inform us as we try to deal with and adapt to this new democracy that is coming. It is inevitable but it is contingent. We can have equality in servitude or equality in freedom. You mentioned a little while back that, you know, we hear this book quoted all the time. I mean, probably the first probably the first time we encounter it, I'd imagine, is, is hearing some politician, you know, or someone on TV saying, Tocqueville says, you know, this. Yeah. And there, so, so it's a remarkable thing that this, it still has this authority. You know, we kind of consult Tocqueville for his opinion about contemporary politics. Um, so maybe, maybe, you know, I'm sure that's not... Um, the most scholarly thing for us to do, but maybe not a bad way for us to wrap up. What, what does he like help us to understand about our own politics? And what, if anything, does he like not anticipate or get wrong? Uh, what do you think about that? There's any number of different things. I mean, kind of like the cliche one. His, uh, you know, he he ha he gets kind of a a reputation as being no 
kind of like a Nostradamus. Mm-hmm. Um, the volume one ends with him predicting that the next century will be dominated by Russia and the United States. Yeah, right. It's an interesting prediction. Other people were saying that at, at the time. It wasn't, uh, he's not the only one to kind of postulate that, but he famously wrote it down. Yeah. Um, that's one of the kind of flippant ones that people like, people like to talk about. So I'll just, it's, it's hard to pick one. I think one of the most interesting kind of things where he both gets it right and gets it wrong uh is on race relations in the united states okay uh so tocqueville again he he is kind of shocked and kind of appalled at the status the state of slavery in the south and he's he's really he's really concerned about this he 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 sees it as this kind of intractable issue he he ultimately says the only person he can really blame for this is the first person who decided that he was going to make I was going to enslave somebody because they were a different race, right? This this happens in uh, you know long before the United States became a became a country, but it uniquely affects the American South and therefore the United States overall. He says that the ways in which racial racial slavery is distinctly different than anything we've had in human history before, because in a it happens in a society that values its equality but that it bases the like most fundamental inequality on something that is physical, right? The color of skin. And so for Tocqueville, then that has a long lasting effect. He, he says that because, because that's the case, even you can change the laws and suddenly make someone make someone free, but because you constantly have what he calls the mark of slavery, mm-hmm. that that maintains its power long after you can change the laws, right? This is kind of an example of one of his uh, kind of habits, mental habits that he thinks is really important, right? If you associate race with something that is lower than you, then that is going to influence how you treat someone from a different race, Mm -hmm. even if the laws are different. Because remember, people are really concerned about preserving their equality. They don't want to be seen as being less than someone, so they're not going to associate with someone who historically was considered less than them, right? And so Tocqueville's very, very explicit. He actually said, he bases it on the North. He says in the North, even though slavery doesn't exist anymore, people treat their slaves even, I don't wanna say it's worse, differently than they than Southerners treat their slaves. He says because the law formalizes race relations in the South, the Southerner can in some sense speak nicely to a slave to even interact or have a conversation with a slave because there's nothing endangering that Southerner's superiority, right? At any moment, he can appeal to the law and say, yeah, you're a slave. I can do with you whatever I want. doesn't matter. It says in the North, because there's no law, it makes people insecure and afraid to interact at all with mm-hmm. former with uh, African-Americans, right? He says they are, they are completely socially separated from society. There's nobody talks to them. Everybody ignores them. They're not even. He says the laws. The laws say they're allowed to vote, but none of them do because they're afraid to, and the, and the uh, the white people won't won't uh, tolerate them voting, even though the laws say they will. Mm. Right. So that kind of helps us understand how the United States develops even after slavery is, you know, legally um, dealt with, right? And it kind of helps helps us understand why this is still something that we are constantly having to interact with and deal with. Right now, it's obviously up for debate, um, very much up for debate today. And it's interesting conversation to be had, the extent to which we have 
kind of removed that removed race as kind of this mark of inferiority. But Tocqueville says it's going to be very, very difficult. And he, he's explicit about it. you can change the laws, but you're going to have to do a lot more than that to figure this out. That's kind of one way in which I think he gets it right. At least helps us understand yeah. the kinds of things we've had to deal with throughout American history, even since the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. The thing that he might get wrong is that he thinks that the only real result that can come of this tension in the United States between democracy, which is the dominant thing in the United States, and slavery, which is fundamentally undemo undemocratic, he's very concerned that it's going to end in kind of racial genocide. Mm -hmm. He does not think that in the end, the white and black Southerners can live together. He, he thinks one or the other, he's not sure who's going to win, but there's going to be a race war and somebody's going to get rid of the other, the other group of people. And we did fight a civil war in which 650,000 people died. It completely upends Southern society. But I mean, I, I grew up in the South and uh, things have changed dramatically, whether they've changed, you know, enough, obviously, is, is, is something that we still debate to this day, again, because of the reasons that Tocqueville identifies. But somehow the United States, through our constitutional system and things like that, was able to have this have this civil war and continue to progress um, ever so slowly and ever in fits and starts um, beyond what uh, what Tocqueville kind of foresaw as this kind of race war. So right. in that sense, uh, you know, theoretically still to be determined, right? History history keeps yeah. moving. But to this point, I think that his darkest predictions for uh, the United States have have not borne out uh, in quite as negatively as he thought. Yeah, so it, it, we don't read, unfortunately, this chapter at the end of volume one on the three races, but that's, yeah, I mean, you should start at the beginning, obviously, if you're reading this, you know, uh, you have some free time and all of this, but, uh, you know, but that definitely slow down when you get there, uh, this chapter, because, you know, as you said, this is an absolutely fascinating part of the book. Um, thanks, Vigiclo. It's been really great talking yeah, to you. Uh, I enjoy one, it. One I'll talk about Tocqueville anytime. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I, I wish I could um, tell everyone that they can take your class next year, but, um, you know, you won't be teaching it anyway. If enough people ask, if enough people ask, I know there are instructors that would love to teach it. So that's right. Yeah, they could form an association, right? And an agitator. That's right. That's right. And uh, collect their individual their individual weakness, right, into an association. Well, that will then give them power um, mm -hmm. beyond themselves, right? Yeah, and show greatness of soul too. So yep, sure that exactly. it didn't go out with aristocracy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Right, well, that was the Social Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. We'd like to thank Dr. Liebert and Major Colello for sharing this with us, and again note that it was recorded during the spring semester. At a time of increased political and racial tensions, these conversations about their roots and what American democracy aspires to be are all the more important. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of West Point, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Please let us know what you think or what you want to hear next. A special thanks, as always, to the West Point Band for providing our music. Thanks again for listening, and have a great social day.